It is a decided privilege and blessing that we've each been given this evening to assemble and to gather in the way that we have to do so for the express purpose of exalting and magnifying the very nature and cause of the kingdom of God. And as I know we're each so thankful for that this evening, let us continue, of course, to appreciate our reading plan through the sacred word of God this year. We at this point have already advanced to the point that we noted this morning. It is true that it brings us to uh, some 22.3% through the completeness of the Word of God, some 265 chapters completed. As you notice, we are now in the midst of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament section of reading and in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke. As we continue with those readings this week, we will, of course, find a continuing unfolding saga of the great value of the revelation of God. Tonight, I would invite you to think with me about that text that Brother Lucas read just a few minutes ago. They're found in the 10th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Please be turning there if you would. You'll notice just a few comments about the character initially of this book of Deuteronomy. It might be fair to say that those first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those occupy, of course, a very interesting and special placement. They're often called the Pentateuch, and sometimes there have been questions about the author of those books. I believe we can readily set that in, in effect to, to a matter of no real comprehension because you'll notice in texts like these, the New Testament states that Moses wrote it. And thus, that sets aside all these other supposed scholarly suggestions that gentleman, that prophet named Moses, authored these five books. And in so doing, none less than Jesus, the Son of God Himself, made relationship to that very fact. You'll notice, though, in light of that, we do find an interesting consideration. Deuteronomy has a rather different character than Numbers did. One of those thoughts that it seemed to me valuable to consider is what you and I, in fact, shall do for the opening part of the lesson this evening. How does the book of Deuteronomy fit into those other four to comprise the Pentateuch? And in what way should we appreciate the placement of the children of Israel in relation to the book of, Deuter of Deuteronomy? It is with that in mind that let's turn our attention to some of these observations, please. The setting of the book. One of the reasons that makes Deuteronomy that which has been the occasion of no small amount of discussion and controversy is the setting and the differences existent in this book compared to those others that have preceded it. Here are some comments. The children of Israel, as you and I know, had left Egyptian bondage. They had entered their own peaceful terms in Genesis chapter 47, but we notice in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, God rained plagues upon the Egyptians because He wanted His people released. He wanted them to be set free. Finally, after the death of the firstborn, that great tenth plague, the Pharaoh, in fact, hastened to their exodus from that placement, and it wasn't long before they came to the Red Sea with the Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea before them, and one more time they saw the great provision of God's mercy upon them. As they, in fact, crossed through on dry land with the waters heaped up on each side of them, they themselves, in fact, left Egypt far behind because the Egyptians were drowned when the waters came back together. You'll notice among those comments I would ask you to observe that readily brought them to Mount Sinai. Fifty days after leaving Egypt, they came to Sinai. 
And as they did there in Exodus 19, verses 1 and following, we are given the fact that that mountain smoked and quaked as Moses went upon it, and God delivered to them not just a set of laws, but a set of laws that governed both their religious life and their civil life. He gave laws touching everything that they would need to be productive and noteworthy citizens pleasing to Him and beneficial to the human family. You'll notice beyond that, you readily appreciate that those laws that God delivered to them bring us to this amazing appreciation. We just read in the book of Numbers not too many days ago, in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, that two years after leaving Egypt, they came to the southern boundary of the promised land. They had arrived at this placement and God had been so good to them. Now you may recall that Moses sent out spies, 12 of them, one from each one of the tribes. And they in fact used 40 days to visit the land, carefully scrutinize and consider it. And they returned and gave a report of that which they had seen. Ten of them readily agreed that it was the land that flowed with milk and honey. It was the land to which they had been moving now for some two years, but yet they were quick to affirm that those that inhabited it were strong and they themselves were like grasshoppers in comparison to them. Their verdict, we cannot take it. On the other hand, Joshua and Caleb said, Yes, indeed, it is the land and our God is with us and He will give us the land if we will simply do that which is His will and follow His commandments. The verdict of the ten, however, swayed the entirety of the group, and so, though they had reached the southern boundary, they were not permitted to enter it. The sentence was this. For 38 more years they would wander. Wander in a wilderness, sometimes called the wilderness of sin. As they wandered, God, in fact, even more directly said, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness because you did not believe in me. That takes us through the remainder of the book of Numbers. It also takes us, of course, through the reality of much of the book of Leviticus. It does, however, bring us tonight to wonder, where does Deuteronomy fit in this? You'll notice from some of the remainder of these comments, the opening saga of the book of Deuteronomy the 38 years of wandering have virtually passed. They are now encamped just on the eastern side of the Jordan River and the promised land is inside. They have come now 38 years later to now the eastern boundary of it. After these years of wandering, they now are shortly to cross that river and enter into the land that God had promised so many years earlier. In fact, you'll notice among those final comments, that really helps us appreciate the uniqueness of the book of Deuteronomy. Those years of wandering, all the events at Sinai were now several decades in the past. They needed a final reminder. They needed one final emphasis upon the reality of the law of God, the urgency of obeying it, and all the promises that awaited their obedience, but all the curses that awaited their disobedience. The final statement then on that particular slide takes us to Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 5. The inspired writer here informs us that they were presently encamped on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, that land of Moab. Shortly they would cross the Jordan River. Shortly that land that they'd been marching toward for so long would be theirs. This next slide then continues by highlighting the meaning of this word Deuteronomy. 
It is a long word, isn't it? You probably can see in the first few letters that which indicates the number two. You and I are frequently familiar with prefixes that mean two of something, like by, like a bicycle has two wheels and so on. But you notice that in other languages, deutero often means two, or at least a doubling of something. And so it is here. Nomos means law, and you can perhaps see those two put together. Deuteronomy means a second reading of the law or a repetition of the law. Hence, in the book of Deuteronomy, we will find many of the salient features already revealed in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers will be repeated so that as they enter Canaan, they will readily have it on their mind. We should be quick to say now that all of that law will not be repeated, of course, only portions of it, those matters that the God of heaven perceived to be the most needful for their second consideration. You might also keep in mind that given the promise that God had stated that their carcasses due to unbelief would be strewn across the wilderness of sin, this generation that was now going to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land, many of them had not even been alive at the time when they were at Mount Sinai. So for them, many of them, this would be a new appreciation, a new presentation of the marvelous wonder of the law of God. As you can see furthermore on these next ideas, one of the features then in Deuteronomy that we find highlighted so very carefully is this one. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. Thou shalt not add unto the word that I command thee, neither shalt thou diminish aught therefrom, that thou mayest keep the commandments of the Lord thy God. Did you notice? He said, you don't add to what I have given, nor do you take anything from it. The law of God was specific, it was detailed, and it presented that which was the mind and will of God. Man had no business adding anything to it or taking anything from it. So significant was that that it was repeated in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Two expositions reminding them that ye shall not add or diminish aught from the word that I give thee. You and I still recognize the necessity of appreciating that thought. We find it again in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. We find it one more time as the Holy Word of God closes in Revelation 22, verses 17 through 21. Even on that occasion, they were told, you do not add or subtract from the prophecies and the statements that God has delivered. Maybe in light of that, it brings us then to appreciate one more time in which the children of Israel were told something about their characteristics. Isn't it true that the book of Deuteronomy, perhaps even more so than those books that have preceded it, Deuteronomy says, you are my chosen people. I didn't pick you, Israel, because you were more lovely or because you were prettier or because you were militarily strong. I picked you because I loved you and because I made promises to your forefathers. All of that's included in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and following. Maybe it's fair to say that the special character of this chosen people leads us to notice that Deuteronomy, also in uniqueness, involves three majestic, tremendous speeches made by Moses. I'd invite you to reflect on these three speeches ever so briefly. 
Notice again, just like some of the other books of the Bible consist of many conversations and discourses, Deuteronomy is the Old Testament book that does this. Three great speeches delivered by Moses. May we not forget, Moses was, the, was a rather aged man when he delivered these speeches, aged 120. And yet, as an older man with that much experience, one who had been their leader now for 40 years, one who had delivered them and brought them to the place they now were, he speaks to them shortly before his own death. And three, these speeches I've tried to outline like this. First, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, and continuing to chapter 4, verse 40, is a historical overview of how they came to be the place they then were. From the time they left Egypt, Moses overviews the conquests that they had enjoyed and, in, and that they had experienced. In fact, all the way to the conquest of the king of Bashan, a gentleman known as Og, Moses details it and specifies just how good God had been to them. Then comes the lengthy speech from chapter 4, verse 44, all the way to chapter 26, verse 19, is an extended presentation of Moses to them in which he highlights things like these. He points out to them carefully how important the law of God was, that they always be urgent to keep it. He highlights, in fact, not only the chosenness of their consideration, but he highlights the needfulness of worship, the detailed way in which it must be carried out if it's to be acceptable. And also in that, he even includes some civil considerations of what's involved in living for God every day. Finally, you notice a third speech. This one is a bit briefer, but nonetheless ever, ever mindful. There was a careful proclamation of the law of God. And when I say proclamation, the scene really was an unforgettable one. Picture it with me, if you would. It really is one of the most memorable mountain scenes in all the Bible. Moses had six of the children of Israel on one mountain, six of them on another, representative of each of the twelve tribes. Those on one of the mountains were to read the rewards and the blessings that would come with obedience to the law of God. On the other mountain was to be those that would read the curses and the sad state of affairs that would result from disobedience. Can you imagine listening to that as one representative from one tribe reads a blessing and then a corresponding one reads a curse? That was to be a monumental reminder of how important it was to always, under all circumstances, obey God. Even when your surrounding nations do not, even when various tendencies and temptations are not, you always, always obey the God of heaven. It is, with that in mind, the last section of Deuteronomy is one in which Moses makes some personal reflections these last several chapters. Highlight the very careful last days of Moses. He even sings a song in chapter 32. A song in which he highlights how important it is to always be obedient to God, but he also prophesies of the fact that Israel was going to be disobedient. He prophesied what would happen to them when they did. And finally, in the last chapter, Moses dies. God buries him, and to this day, no man knows where the grave is. With all that stated, that overview of the book brings us to the text that Lucas read earlier this evening. 
In the heart of this second speech, we find a statement made about circumcision. And it's a statement that is often one that we appreciate the Jews fail to appreciate. I would ask you tonight with me to reflect on what it was, see how they misinterpreted it, missed the objective and point, and how you and I cannot make their same mistake. In wisdom, we should do better than they. You'll notice as we come to this slide, we now appreciate this matter of circumcision. Please turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 12. It says, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, and earth also and all that it therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and He chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward." You'll notice that Moses' words were amazing. If one didn't know better, you would think that came out of the heart of the New Testament, wouldn't you? Isn't it amazing that Jesus quoted much of that verbatim in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31? Isn't it fantastic that He could draw upon these amazing truths set before the children of Israel so many years previous, and yet they still indicate the fervent spirit even of the New Testament era? Back to verse number 12. Israel, what is it that God requires of you? You and I know very well that some of the comments that I have shared with you there leads us rather easily and rather readily to appreciate this. As you and I think about the nature of those ancient Jews, isn't it true that they were very fond of looking upon external service that service that could be seen easily. You'll notice that some of the statements made about that. They were very fond of keeping the feast because you could tell when they went to Jerusalem. Three times in the year that was supposed to be done and thus one could easily appreciate in a public way the performance of that duty. They were very fond of the sacrifices because again one could tell when you brought an animal and when you had directed it to the priest as commanded. They were rather fond of keeping the Sabbath because that was a weekly matter and you could easily tell whether or not an individual was keeping it as commanded. You may quickly begin to observe that these tendencies of the ancient Hebrews were such that they really tended to pay special attention to those outward expositions of faithfulness. But all the while, they missed completely, it seems, the inner motivation that prompted that service. They missed entirely the reason and the mercy and love that directed one to do this. For them, the law was merely an external matter to be kept, and it seemed to matter very little what the condition of the heart was. 
Yet, oddly enough, you'll notice in the text you and I just read, it again said, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. I would invite you to think with me quickly about some of these statements. It is fair to say, don't you agree, that the children of Israel tended to be a situational thinking people. As long as everything was in their favor, they were fine, they were content, they were happy and satisfied. But the very moment that any problem developed, the very moment that any unfavorable circumstance came to pass, it was a very different situation. They were given to complaining. They were given to grumbling. They were given, in fact, to murmuring. And so often, sometimes even given to rebellion as a byproduct of that murmuring. One of those bottom statements you'll notice on that slide, that is the very core of the stiff-necked character of these people. Situational in nature, they would stiffen that neck, and really that's what the Hebrew word suggests. Stiffen that neck against the words that they were told. They were bound and determined to do what they intended and what they wished despite what other commandments from God might be set forth. That stiff-necked character, of course, more than once led them into open rebellion and protest, and God sent fiery serpents among them as we studied last Sunday evening. You'll notice as we come to the next slide, though, that this whole matter of circumcision is one which is well for us to perhaps consider a bit more thoroughly. Physical circumcision, spiritual circumcision. We are well aware of the fact that that physical circumcision was a removal of a portion of the skin on a male, and in so doing it was intended, of course, for the following reason. It was a sign of a covenant that God had made with their forebears, with Abraham as far back as Genesis chapter 17. Consider then, circumcision was something they would turn their attention to, and for the Jew, it held an incredibly important consideration. You and I remember more than once, even the New Testament writers wrestled with Jews who wished to give more than reasonable consideration to circumcision. Translate it to the statement before us here. You'll notice Moses had nothing to say, on this occasion at least, about that physical act of circumcision. He again mentioned circumcision of the heart. What was this circumcision to which God referred? Here is a suggestion. Here is a statement that seems to me to put the matter rather well. This spiritual circumcision was a removal. Just like physical circumcision was a removal of a portion of skin, this was spiritual circumcision, a removal of those matters, those thoughts, whatever they were, that would, in fact, separate one from the performance of that which was for spiritual healthiness. You need to have your heart circumcised, Moses told them. You'll notice in particular... That statement of Deuteronomy 10, 16 was very brief, very much to the point. These thoughts followed directly from it. As noted a moment ago, they were far too concerned with those matters of an external character. And we would not for a moment say that that was unimportant. 
It's just that they missed the major motivation, didn't they? They failed to overlook the circumcision of the heart. And more than once, the biblical writers remind us of the same. In that text of Matthew 22, when Jesus Himself was asked, What is the greatest commandment? There were well over 600 commandments in the law of Moses. And of all of them, the Jews had wrestled for centuries about which one was the best one, which one was the greatest, which one was the most noteworthy, and the one that God looked upon with the utmost of demand. They thought surely they had placed Jesus in an unanswerable position, and yet with almost no hesitation, He said, To love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. Did you notice Jesus quoted a very portion of the passage before us? He went on, though, one beyond that and said, The second commandment is likened unto it, Love thy neighbor as thyself, borrowing that from Leviticus 19. As you can see in these, there's perhaps another consideration. When Jesus made that statement, you notice in our reading of this past week from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, a passage that Jews typically call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy mind. Jesus lifted himself above the mundane character of some of these other laws. And he said the one that is the one that prompts the service of all the others if you truly do love God with all your being, you will take care of tending to these other things like the Sabbath, the Jubilee, the keeping of the Passover, the celebrations. But the one matter that mustn't be overlooked is the one that properly guards, guides, and limits all these other services. The Jews had failed in that one, hadn't they? A text to which I'd turn your attention from Matthew 23 in the very heart of that chapter, verses 23 and 24, Jesus, on that occasion, you may recall He gave an extended diatribe against the Jews. Seven times He pronounced a woe upon them, and seven times He said, You hypocrites! They professed one thing and did something else. And yet, in verses 23 and 24, He put it like this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye tithe cumin and mint and anise. But notice he said you overlook the weightier matters of mercy, judgment, and faith. Interesting. They were given to the detailed issues relating to those matters like tithing mint and anise and cumin, but the Lord said you have overlooked the weightier matters. And that adjective weightier suggests these were enormously important and yet you've treated them lightly. As that verse ends, Matthew 23, 23, he said, These ought to, uh, to you to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus said it's not a bad thing that you pay attention to the details. The, part, the problem is you have overlooked the critical issue that leads to the ultimate meaning and objective of everything you've done. In the very next verse, isn't it amazing the way Jesus states it? Matthew 23, verse 24. There he says, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Picture that with me. Maybe you and I more than once have watched our mother or grandmother or some other person in a kitchen who strains out impurities in something. 
I remember my grandparents, after coming from the barn, milking the cow, you'd, of course, strain the milk to get out all the trash or dust that may have fallen in it. Jesus says, you strain out a gnat, but then you swallow a camel. You pay attention to the most nitpicking matters, but you forget the major matters on which all of it is predicated. Remarkable, isn't it? You and I realize that as Jesus made that statement to them in Matthew 23, it brings us back to this matter in circumcision found again in Deuteronomy chapter 10. As we come to this last set of concepts, it seems entirely noteworthy to appreciate that this whole matter of circumcision and their failure to understand the overall arching basis of it was a problem that reared its head several times in the New Testament. I thought you and I could reflect on Paul's extended description in the closing verses of Romans chapter 2. You may remember there, Paul himself said, Circumcision availeth only if you keep the law. He was quick to say, Those of you then who violate the law, circumcision profits you nothing. I wonder how far their mouths dropped open when Paul made that statement. To them, something like circumcision was everything. But Paul was quick to say, circumcision has the proper subjective meaning only if you keep the law. Paul said, you haven't kept the law, and therefore circumcision to use meaningless. Several verses later, he said, God's description of circumcision was that it was to be done inwardly. Exactly the matter you and I have studied tonight. For he is not a Jew who is circumcised only outwardly. He is a Jew who is circumcised inwardly. As we noted earlier, God desired sincere, devoted, heartfelt service. And that's still what He wants, isn't it? He wants individuals who love Him above all else. For when they do, they will be interested in keeping the commandments. Jesus did say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And one chapter later in John 15, 14, he said, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Maybe in light of that, we could appreciate just a few of these verses. So many New Testament passages remind us of this same principle. Heartfelt, devoted, humble, obedient service. Not doing what we think and hoping that God finds that acceptable. Not doing what we find convenient and hoping that that's good enough. But to bend our will, not to be stiff-necked, but to bend our will to that which is His own. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul on that occasion said about the nature of living a life of wholesome, dedicated service to the Lord. He put it in language like, Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You'll notice beyond that, one could take note of that famous passage in John 21. On that occasion, the crucified Christ, even the resurrected Christ, he carried on a conversation with Peter in which he said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. The first thing that Peter needed to understand above all else was the need to love the Lord and to love Him fully and completely. 
we sang tonight, one of the songs that Brother Glenn chose to lead us in, about do you love the Lord? Number 642, I believe it is. That question is still as vital and as pertinent as it ever was. Other passages to which you and I could turn. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, where on that occasion John reminds us that that which stands outside of and apart from the faithfulness to God is that which you and I must shun. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For he that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You'll notice that those passages remind us about this distinction and placing our love for the Lord above all things else. In addition to those, many of those other things listed, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We notice there the victory, the triumph that's promised to those who do in fact love the Lord in this way. For you and I are always led in triumph in Christ. One chapter later, chapter 3, verse 5, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it's of God. Maybe in light of that matter and sufficiency, come with me briefly to that text in Titus 3, verse 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, that very passage, verse 11, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we must live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There is a marvelous distinction, isn't there? On the one hand, there's living soberly and righteously and godly, which stands opposed to those matters that so often are paraded and pronounced by those of the world. Which is it for you and for me? Is your heart circumcised? Is mine? Only you and I can answer that question. No one else can answer it for me, for you, because you see, you can't read my heart and I can't read yours. You may be here tonight, but wish you were somewhere else. Your heart may not be in it. Ezekiel wrestled with people of that trouble, didn't he? He straightforwardly told them, your heart is not in it. And because of that, your worship is not acceptable. Tonight, does God find your worship acceptable? Does He find mine? Maybe one last thought, and that concept we'll, then we'll use to close our lesson. It is that refrain of Hebrews 10, 23. As you and I appreciate the commandment to consider one another to provoke into love and good works, and the observation that follows therefrom, what about that exhortation? That prompting of others, do others appreciate that heartfelt sincerity of love for the Lord that's manifested in me and in you? After all, being hypocritical is just a show. And God knows what your heart and mind is really like. He knows where our thoughts are, our actions are lying, and He knows what objective we follow. The closing thing on that slide is the conclusion to the lesson this evening. We began with an overview and a placement of the setting of this book. The people are just about there. They're almost to the promised land. Just a few more weeks and 40 years of wandering will be past them. They needed to learn and relearn one more time all of these truths so that as they entered that land, they could live as they should, worship as they should, and in fact be the promised prize of the God of heaven. In principle, there hadn't much changed about that. The church today is God's promised prize. You and I, as the blood-bought body of Christ, Acts 20, 28, are the very ones who have the principle and promise of circumcision of the heart. 
Are you and I circumcised in heart? If not, we need to make a change tonight. If you as an individual realize that you're astray from the fold of safety, it may be that you've never yet rendered faithful obedience to the commandments of God. Let tonight be, this, be the night. March the 30th, 2014, your spiritual birthday. What a grand day it'd be. If we could help you, that plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the, for the remission of your sins. If you have been a part of that body, you've known about working in the church, and you had a circumcised heart at one time, but things have changed. Pressures of life have developed. Perhaps temptations like we learned this morning have arisen and you've become distracted. You have really fallen into disservice to God. You know your heart can be recircumcised. That spiritual surgery can be done again. We pray with you tonight and for you that that might take place and God will one more time welcome you to His side as a faithful member and one recipient of all the blessings spoken of in Ephesians chapter 1. Tonight, if we could be of help to anyone in any way, we would only ask that you in kindness but in haste let us know the way we can. And won't you come while together we stand and sing.